Welcome to the Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Ebowitz. Well, we've been doing a series on the heroes and villains of philosophy, and today's guest has been kind enough to keep us going through this. He's an objectivist philosopher who received his PhD in philosophy from City University, New York. He taught for many years at Marist College, and he is the author of numerous books, including Heroes, Legends, Champions, Why Heroism Matters, Professor Andrew Bernstein, welcome back. Thanks, Michael. It's good good to be back. And <laughs> since you since you spoke, oh, oh, man, look I, at that. I just happened I just happened to have a copy here yeah, by that's you know by wonderful. Awesome. It's available from Amazon. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's good to be back, Michael. It's been been a fun discussion of the history of philosophy. Oh, I, I'm I'm loving it. So I think we left off and the, the philosopher we're going to, the first philosopher we'll get to today is the British philosopher, John Locke. So Correct. without further ado, take us away. All right. Locke is, uh, he's English. Like you said, he's, um, his dates were 1632 to 1704. He's one of the great political philosophers in history. Certainly had a major impact on the, on the American founders. So you know he's a, he's a uh, he's a he's a hero. I think he's a mixed case, but largely a hero. When we when we discuss heroes in philosophy, of course, what we mean by this are there are their ideas basically life supporting and you know and, and promote human life, or are they life yeah. harming and you know and harm human life? And I think Locke is is a very positive figure. Now, before we get to politics, Michael, we should discuss epistemology. You know, which is the branch of philosophy that studies how human beings gain knowledge. And Locke's a thoroughgoing empiricist, meaning empiricism, you know, is a, is a theory of knowledge that claims all knowledge originates in sense experience. You know, uh, all knowledge originates in, obs in observation. And um, it was an essay concerning human understanding, I think was the title of Locke's major work in epistemology. But he's, you know, we discussed Descartes in our last episode and Descartes was a rationalist, meaning uh, sense experience is not all that important. Gaining knowledge, we if we, we gain knowledge. And Descartes was a great geometrist, I forget. So we gain knowledge by deducing uh, uh, conclusions from basic axioms. And Descartes believed in innate ideas. He was he was a devout Catholic. Innate ideas meaning that we're born. With certain ideas buried in our in our minds some somewhere, uh, and planted according to Descartes in our minds by God. Uh, now Locke refutes this brilliantly, and there's a parallel here between Plato and Aristotle in the ancient world and Descartes and Locke in the early modern world. Locke refutes Descartes' theory of innate ideas in much the same way that Aristotle had refuted Plato's, and and Locke proceeds to do this by by showing that any idea that that we we can mention, no matter how complex or even fictional, can be explained by the by the mind's ability to take uh, the, the the data of observation and then combine or rearrange rearrange it into in, into new forms. So, for instance, we take a complex concept like marriage, let's say, which involves many elements. You know, Locke says, "Well, we we can observe a man, we could observe a woman, we could observe." You know, love making. We could observe the conception of a chi child bearing and child rearing. We could observe, you know, the uh, financial arrangements between husband and wife, and you know, and, and so many and so many other things. 
And we could combine all of this into the very complex idea of marriage and, and the legal and the legal aspect of it, you know, as, as well, and many, many other, you know, uh, features of, of, a, of a marriage. But well, we even take a fictional ideal, you know, a mythical ideal like a centaur. You know, the mythical being, which is supposedly half man and half horse. Uh, I know some people, you know, I think they, the horse part predominated the man part, at least in terms of what went on, you know, between their ears. But some of them, unfortunately, a lot of them are in politics, you know, and on both sides of the aisle. But, um, you know, the, the, the Locke says, you know, the mind, we, we, we've observed men, we've observed horses, and the mind has a, a creative faculty. It can combine these into a new idea. It's, it's fictional, but the, this is how the, the mind operates. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the, the, Locke says, there aren't any ideas that the human mind conceives that can't be explained by reference to observation and the combination and rearrangement of observed facts. We don't, there's, no, there's no need to appeal to God, or, you know, the implanting in our minds of, of innate ideas. And so Locke's uh, theory of knowledge is much more inductive, like Aristotle, than it is deductive. That is, in, inductive means, you know, we start with observed facts, and then we formulate principles based on based on on observation. Right. You know, the example I use in logic class very simple. Um, you know, all cats are carnivores. All lions are cats. Therefore, all lions are carnivores. You know, that, that's a valid deduction. Uh, the the conclusion follows necessarily from the premises. But how do we know the the, the premises are true? All cats are carnivores. Well, we we're not born. Aristotle and Locke agree. We're not born knowing this kind of stuff. You know. This requires observation, and in some cases, probably unfortunate observations. It's, you know, like saber-toothed tigers or cats, <laughs> and your know, Nanook the caveman went out one day and didn't come back. What you did know? you call him, Nanook? No, yeah, I just made up a name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just, like, just, I'm just a kid from Brooklyn. I like that name. So Locke used the term to describe what you're, you're talking about: tabular, tabula rasa, hmm? right? Meaning blank slate. Now, I've had some discussions about this with people because in my view when somebody says that the human mind is born tabula rasa it means without ideas without knowledge conceptual knowledge where it's not an argument saying it's born without the capacity to learn language or there's no uh what's the word i'm looking for like no, no it, it tendencies and no reflexes yeah, no, no no abilities or anything like that yeah it, it just has to do with in with, with there, there is no innate conceptual knowledge am i correct that that's what he's referring to and much later what ayn rand would be referring to absolutely that's aristotle that's Locke, that's rand that the the mind uh, you know these 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 thinkers who claim that all knowledge originates in observation are not claiming that the mind has no abilities it has, has there's no innate ideas there's no there's no knowledge that we're born with Certainly, no evidence to support the claim that there's knowledge we're, 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 that we're born with. I mean, Descartes is a great geometer. I don't think he ever observed any baby come crawling out of the womb, you know, spouting off geometrical propositions, uh, you, you know, or, or anything else for that matter. Um, but anyhow, go back to, to my example. You know, Nanook the caveman went out and didn't come back one day, and they found his skeleton having been eaten by the saber toothed tiger, and they start, you know, start gaining. Uh, experience start gaining uh, observational data that 
they didn't know that tigers were cats back then, but they, eventually they learned, learned that also through experience. And that cats are meat eaters, and they, you and I are meat, you know? So they're, you know, the big cats are dangerous. Um, and so all, all knowledge originates in observation. This, uh, I think, Locke uh, establishes this point very, very effectively. And, um, and it has political consequences. It has very, very uh, benign political consequences in contrast to the Platonic uh, Cartesian view. Cartesian is just taking Descartes' name and making it into an adjective. Uh, I mean, we should maybe we should go back a little bit, Michael, because we in, in, we discussed that um, in the Platonic Cartesian view. Your know, knowledge is derived from a transcendent world. Yeah. Well, who studies a transcendent world? <laughs> you know, Plato and Descartes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Not every man and every woman, and Plato is very famous for this. You know, you know the philosopher king theory in the in the Republic. Uh, you know, only the philosophers. Philosophy means love, love of wisdom, and the lovers of wisdom, rather than the lovers of power or pleasure or, or you know or money, uh, they they study the higher world. Well, then they know they they have much greater wisdom than we do. You know, including of moral and political principles, and so if the government on earth is going to be morally upright, it has to be run by the philosophers, the, those who best know what it, what it means to be moral. And so, you know, the idea of a philosopher king, a top-down command system in which to go, let's put it this way, the conceit has always been, going back to Plato, that the educated elite know what's best for me better than I do. And consequently, my life should be governed by them in my self-interest for my life to be governed by them because they know what's good. I don't. Uh, you know, Plato's description of democracy, you know, meaning by any any type of political freedom, was a system which permits each man to go to the devil in his own way. Uh, you know, so I think Plato means the drug addicts are free to kill themselves on drugs and the boozers are free to kill themselves on booze and so on. Uh, so, you know, on that on that transcendent theory of uh, of knowledge was gained from a, from a higher world, and observation has very little, you know, a little bit to do with it, but not much. Uh, the political ramifications are, you know, you have a dictatorship of the intellectual or moral elite. Uh, whereas on Locke's view and Aristotle's, um, if knowledge is gained from observation, then every man and every have the capacity to, to gain knowledge and gain wisdom because they're dealing with the observable world every day. They're making a living. They're raising their kids. You know, they're you know they're repairing their their home or plowing their fields or whatever it is. They know observable facts presumably better than the philosophers do who are busy studying a transcendent world. Well, you know, if uh, um, every man and every woman are rational beings in that way, capable of gaining knowledge, then they're capable of being self-governing. They can govern their own lives. They don't need the wise rulers of the state to dictate to them what's best for them and their children. And, you know, a ra rational beings, and by rational, I think we mean here what Aristotle means, or something, Locke means something very similar. Um, the knowledge is gained by logical, non-contradictory thinking about observed facts. The observed facts are critical here. Uh, if that's what it means to gain knowledge and, and, and by extension to gain wisdom, every man and every woman can do it. And consequently, they could be self-governing beings. And so you see Locke's move from uh, uh, an empirical epistemology into a, a, a politics of freedom.
Okay, before we get to the politics, Locke, correct me if I'm wrong, was in, in addition to being an empiricist, was also an associationist, right? Depends what you mean by that. Well, he believed that that you the association of ideas is is how we learn. I don't know. I don't really. I wanted you to explain it because I don't fully grasp it. <laughs> to, to be perfectly honest with you, but but he well, I, I, that we come to learn by associating d- different ideas t- together or associating them with reality or, or something. I don't know. Maybe I'm just. Yeah, I, I think I think I get your drift here. Uh, here's the problem with Locke, as I, with his epistemology, with his theory of knowledge, as I see it, and that is, like Descartes, he accepts both the uh, causal and the representative theories of knowledge. Okay. And um, I think this is where the problem comes in. The causal theory of knowledge claims that reality causes the ideas that we have in our minds, but the ideas in our minds are not of those objects. So, I'm looking at the table across the room here. Um, and according to Locke, uh, I, I don't know the table itself. I know the perception or the idea in my, in my mind of the table. Okay. And then the table causes it, but, but, he, so we, we're, but we're divorced from reality in that way. We know the idea in our mind, not, not the object that causes. Now, uh, connected with that, he holds what's known as the representative theory of knowledge, which is that these ideas in our mind represent the objects. That is, they're good likenesses of them, the way, you know, um, Gilbert Stewart's famous portrait of George Washington, presumably a good likeness of, of Washington. Um, you see the problem there. Since we don't know the objects, only the ideas in our mind, how would we know that they're a good representation of the objects? <laughs> we couldn't, yeah. No, we couldn't. We couldn't, and so Locke, despite himself, despite his his leanings towards objectivity and 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 observation of the objective world, Locke ends up in part as a subjectivist in that regard. We're, we're locked, if I can use the phrase, locked locked away in our minds, uh, without any cognitive access to the uh, you know to nature. So there's a there's a, a real problem um, that that Locke initiates in in epistemology. So is that, would you say that was his biggest weakness? Because you said he was a mixed case. Yeah. Is that the uh, the point at which he hits his low? I think so. Yeah, that is his, yeah, Nadia. I think that's his 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 low point. Uh, he's 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 a, a curious mixture in that regard of, uh, he's part Aristotelian and part Cartesian. You know, he agrees with, with Descartes on, the, on the, this, these last points. Okay, so you were getting to his political theory, which, in my view, is monumental. And some people argue that his influence on the founders of the United States wasn't as big as some might think. I tend to disagree. I think he had a profound impact, especially on Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence and on the founders' view of property. So but, so what what exactly is Locke's contribution what where is he new what what does he bring into the table why is it good yeah before i answer that michael um you know my good friend uh, bradley thompson just a couple of years ago published a book uh, a great book and so i can't remember the title um but it's brad thompson's most most recent full-length book and really really explores Locke's influence on on the founders and really shows, you know how oh, yeah okay shows how strong shows how strong it is which I get, uh, 
the spirit of the American Revolution, or, or um, um, it's, it's something like that. But but anyhow, um, Locke publishes two treatises of civil government, 1688, 1690, somewhere somewhere in that range, late you know late 17th century. And in the second treatise of civil government, Locke uh, very famously and influentially argues that individuals are endowed with, with certain in, inalienable, I think he says unalienable, uh, inalienable rights, which include life, liberty, and property, which as you, you pointed out, Jefferson almost verbatim, you know, uh, 80 odd years later, writes in the Declaration of Independence, you know, the individuals have an inalienable right to life, liberty, and uh, the pursuit of happiness. Now, inalienable, first of all, we, we need to define a lot of these terms. Inalienable means it can't be alienated, can't be estranged or divorced from me. It's mine by birthright, by virtue of being a human being. I'll give you an example. A few years ago in class, a kid said to me, or she said to the whole class, she said, in many parts of the world, women don't have any rights. And I said, to, as a good lock, I said, no. All over the world, women have rights. They have rights simply by virtue of being human beings. You mean in many parts of the world, those rights are not recognized, they're not respected, and they're not protected. You know, so I use the example, and kids are looking at me, I use the example, you know, in, in Afghanistan, for instance, the Taliban are so brutal and backwards. They'll murder a woman, you know, because she wants to get an education. And they're all, all horrified, right? Why are we horrified? Well, because she does morally have the right to pursue an education if that's what she chooses. That's her right as a human being. And, you know, the kids get it. You know, the very often these, these rights are abrogated. Um, but the rights are inalienable. They, they can't be divorced from us. Um, so this is a this is a huge step forward, you know, that prior to this, I mean, this, uh, this idea of personal liberty and individual rights is germinating in, in Britain of his day, 17th century. But Locke codifies it into a formal political theory that, it, you know, that, that individual, individual's life, to put it simply, your life belongs to you. It doesn't belong to the king you know, or the feudal aristocracy or the church or, 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 or whatever. Your life belongs to you. It's yours. You have certain inalienable rights. Life, liberty, and property. I think Locke means life, liberty, and the right to to work hard and earn earn and own. Well, yeah, uh, because he not, describes the origination of property. It's not, and, and you actually have to apply your labor. You don't just give me what I want. I have a right to it, right? Exactly, yeah, exactly. Uh, and and you're right, Michael. Locke gives the the classic defense of private property rights, which is still, you know, used to this day. And that is that if you, as he puts it, if you mix your labor with the raw materials of nature, the resulting product is and should properly be yours. So, you know, a simple example I always use is um, I'll pick out some kid in the class and I'll say, you know, Joe here and his family, you know, go into the wilderness and they chop down some trees and they, they plane the trees down and they do the architectural work, design a log cabin, and then they build the cabin. There's a lot of work, you know. The, the cabin should, you know, belong to them, right? And again, the kids all agree. And then along come along I come, you know, Bernstein the Raider with his with his boys armed to the teeth. Maybe with and Nanook. Said, <laughs> yeah, with Nanook, yeah. <laughs> with Nanook and his brothers. Um, you know. And I said, thanks, Joe. Thanks for building this cabin for, for me and my boys. 
And Joe and his family said, we didn't build it for you. It's ours. We put in the you know, all the, the sweat equity here, if I could quote the great Jerry Rice, great football player. Uh, we put in we put in all this intellectual work to design the, the, the cabin and the physical work of chopping down the trees and everything's ours. And I raised, you know, my my AK and I pointed at his chest and I said, Oh, really? You know, and so I, you know, I plunder it, I raid it, I raid it, I steal it. Well, you see, you know, Locke's point, of course, is I'm wrong here, and Joe and his family are right. They built it, they mixed their labor with the raw materials of nature. The cabin properly belongs to them. And uh, that's why theft, which I'm guilty of in this case, is wrong. It's 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 morally wrong. He gives a brilliant uh, defense of private property rights. You know that needs to be fle- you know fleshed out, and, and and but he but but he provides a brilliant basis for it. I I think that it's absolutely revolutionary. His idea of life, liberty, and property as rights that we have by virtue of being human and that the only proper purpose of government is to protect those rights are great. Two areas where I I have an issue with his rights theory. One is the idea that rights come from God. Now, look at it. It's like you said, it's 1680s. You know what I mean? I can, I can understand it, but it's still nonetheless, I believe it is an unnecessary inaccuracy. But the other problem is the Lockean proviso. The idea that you can only accumulate rightfully enough land as you're going to use or as as much property as you're going to use, because I think that sets up later on down the line. We'll we'll get to, you know, some of the Marxist ideas of property and surplus uh, uh, wealth or whatever. I forget the terms he uses. But what do you think about those things? Uh, The the rights coming from God and the the Lockean proviso. No, I agree with you 100 percent on everything you you just said. I think Locke is revolutionary. I think he's an, he's enormously positive. Um, uh, also, 17th century context, Christianity is uh, you know a, a very powerful force in the Western world at that time. Locke is I you know when I teach Locke, I always teach him. He's like he's, he's a little bit like Thomas Aquinas in a way. He's like he's he's part Aristotelian and he's part Christian. Um, but um. Yeah, uh, it, it is understandable in the 17th century, but it's still an error. Sure, uh, you know it's very difficult to show that rights are based in, in in the requirements of human life. That's not done for you know for more than 300, 300 years following, or, or two hundred or somewhat years following uh, in in the yeah, it's close to three hundred uh, years following by Ayn Rand in the Atlas Shrugged and in her nonfiction the the virtue of selfishness. Um, so, so I don't want to criticize Locke for, be, for not. He, he's so far ahead of his time. I don't want to yeah. criticize him if I'm saying, "Well, you're not far enough ahead of your time." But he, he was mistaken. The Lockean proviso, yeah, that is a that is a, uh, a worse error, I think, in 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 the cultural context because it does it in effect it empowers the government to say, um, "Well, you have enough. You have enough land. You you have enough wealth." You have, you know, you have enough your money in the bank, you know, whatever it is, you don't need more than this. And whatever you produce, then, you know, we'll we'll take it, we'll relieve you of it, you know, and and we'll we'll distribute it as you know as as we see fit. It's a, it's it's um um, the idea that that somebody has enough, it, it's it's subjective. It's completely. Uh, you know, it's it's a mushy. First of all, it's a mushy term. 
who defines what's enough? You know, you know who defines that? If not, if not the person himself, well, you know, the the answer that's most likely going to be given is well, the state uh, will define that and will redistribute the the so-called excess wealth, yeah. you know, that you create or or own. It's a it's a move from the laissez-faire system that Locke primarily supports towards socialism and statism. And it's, yeah, it's very, 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 it's mistaken. It's very harmful. All right. So what else do you think we need to cover uh, on Locke before we get to your next guy? <laughs> next guy. Uh, I think that, um, I think that pretty much co- covers the, the waterfront. I just want to say before we leave, before we leave Locke, uh, maybe when you put up the show notes, you could, I, I can send you, I'll, I'll get the title of Brad Thompson's recent book and maybe okay. put it in there because for anybody who's interested in, uh, interested in Locke's influence on the American founders, uh, Brad Thompson's book is brilliant. All right. We'll be there. S- send me the email and, I, and I'll, uh, I'll get it there. So Locke, we, we're in agreement Thank you. is a hero. Yeah, oh, definitely. And before we leave Locke, maybe we should just point out briefly a little more of the influence on the American founders. And okay. the relationship with 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 the American founders, because um, Locke dies in 1704. Benjamin Franklin's born across the pond in 1706, just you know, just two years after Locke's death. He was the he was the oldest, uh, you know, of the of the major of the major founders. And I I think Locke Locke wanted to to limit the power of the government. Well, definitely wanted to limit the power of the government. And here he's writing polemically, at least in part, against. Thomas Hobbes, who was, you know, uh, earlier contemporary of his. And <clears throat> Hobbes, who thought human beings are driven by our urges and impulses and, and everything. And, uh, you know, are basically whim-driven, destructive creatures. We needed the, we needed the all-powerful dictator to ram war and order down our, down our throats. Uh, now, Locke disagrees. Locke's theory we saw is not, the human beings are not generally driven by their impulses but they're rational beings and they you know they they're, they're better off governing themselves and being you know dictated to by some you know political strongman and um so Locke's theory is known as limited government we want a government life in the state of nature as they put it you know in the absence of a government uh is you know we're prone to we're susceptible to criminals and so on and so forth but if I can update Locke on this, he's prescient. The dictator is much more dangerous to us than is any private criminal. Now, neither he nor Hobbes, you know, lived to see the 20th century of you know, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, and you know, murderers like that. But they knew there were kings who were tyrants and you know and, and such. And I think Locke's point is, is this: a private criminal. Has to, you can deal with a private criminal, even in the state of nature, even without any government. Because what does he got with his gang? 500 guys or 1,000 guys? Well, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of honest people in society. If they've had it finally up to here with the criminal's depredations, they all get together, you know, thousands of them, and march on the criminal's headquarters with torches and pitchforks, and they pull the, they pull the guy apart bone by bone, you know? Uh, so even in the state of nature, you, you can deal with with nasty criminals, with dangerous criminals. Uh, furthermore, if you have a limited government, then the then the criminal ability to impose, uh, to victimize innocent people is, is uh, opposed by the criminal justice system. He's limited in the power he has because he's going, you know, he's got the 
in the United States today if we update this. He's got, you know, the Department of Justice after him, or, you know, or whatever. So he's limited in the, in, the, in the pain and the harm he can inflict. But the government, a dictator, he, he is the state. He controls the, the police force. He controls the court system. He controls the prison system. He controls the military. He comes at you with the full power of the state behind him. And it's very difficult to defend yourself. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult, much more difficult to defend yourself against a dictator than it is against any private criminal. So, you know, Locke's right on this, um, that the, the, the power of the state is the main danger here to, to our lives and our rights, not the power of some other private individuals, even, even you know, criminals like, like you know, terrible criminals like the drug cartels who, who are really violent. Uh, so Locke is prescient and he wants to limit the power of the state. But he, he, you know, and, and the, he wants to limit the power of the state to three basic functions. You know, have a criminal justice system to protect honest people from bad guys. You know, have a civil court system to adjudicate honest, you know, you know, legitimate disputes between and amongst honest persons, and have a volunteer military to defend the country against foreign uh, invaders or foreign bad guys. Uh, and that's it. Those are the functions of the, of the government. Um, but he, he, I don't think he knows how to limit how to do this legally. It's, it's the genius of the American founders that that put this into. You know, that put this into operation. James Madison gets a lot of, you know, gets gets a lot of credit. How do we limit the power of the state? You know, of course, we have a system of checks and balances that's you know brilliantly conceived, in, you know, by Madison in the U.S. Constitution. Um, but above all, you have a written constitution with a bill of rights, which is the basic law of the land. So, freedom of speech is under fire today. Uh, it's uh, it's terrifying to me, but you know. Uh, freedom of religion, right in the First Amendment, both of them. Uh, you know, that these are the basic war, war of the land, and the government has got to abide by it. And the U.S. government did until very recently, you know, when the Biden administration uh, put, you know, it was a, div a division of uh, governance board on disinformation at Homeland Security, uh, you know, Ministry of Truth. Well, and Professor Bernstein, up until right now, I think I've agreed with every word you've uttered. And I don't disagree with you about the Biden administration. I just disagree that it's a recent phenomenon. I mean, oh. it, you know, what was it, 1798, when Adams is signing into law the Alien and Sedition Acts, where they're already okay. cutting down on free speech? I mean, in the first administration, they were already violating the Constitution with a national bank. So it's not just, a, I mean, the, the government almost immediately started violating the contract or the, you know, the, however you want to view the Constitution. It's not okay. to take away from Biden's sins. I'm not, I'm not defending Joe Biden by any stretch of the imagination. No, I, okay. Okay. Um, but uh, it's in recent years with uh, cancel culture and, and, you know, and, uh, and now we, you know, we see the government imposing censorship you know the fbi coaching well, sure you they know. were all they were they were telling the social media what to do all kinds of horrible yeah things. coaching yeah, twitter and yeah i agree that's all media. all terrible yeah, it's, stuff. yeah it's all it's all censorship for the most sure. part i think we say until recently the u.s government generally protected uh freedom of speech um it's but it's the but the point is my point is this the the american founders identified how to put Locke's theoretical principles into practice, how to establish a limited government that protects the rights of, uh, 
uh, of individuals rather than violates them. And, you know, I think the American experiment in Republican government shows the dangers. No matter how brilliant the Constitution is and the Bill of Rights, it can't survive the rise of irrational philosophy in the, in the society, which we're going to discuss you know, as we as, as we move it, ahead. You know, I learned this lesson um, when I was in prison. I was part of a, a program called the Alternative to Violence Project, and I was an inmate facilitator. And I felt that as inmate facilitators representing this program, we should have higher standards of conduct for ourselves because the inmates that would take the program look to us. And if we're hypocrites, then everything we say falls on deaf ears. And I came up with the idea, well, okay, well, what we need is a uh, code of morality for the, the, for the group, a, a, a code of ethics. And what I didn't grasp is you, you, you can't, dictate that kind of stuff it doesn't matter i, I mean it, it works if people want to live that way and want to live by a constitution but if the public doesn't have the character and doesn't have the the rationality for it then all the rules and regulations will just never ever cut it and it, no, no it, it, exactly exactly yeah. uh if, if if christianity become religion becomes a dominant philosophy in a society then you you know the the powers that be the politicians and you know and so forth they're going to look for ways to uh, pass laws that violate uh, you know the right to abortion or you know or, or whatever it is or you know, individuals' rights to you know, gay individuals' rights to marry or they'll find way they'll find loopholes that will they like, ban the teaching of evolution in the public schools in the Bible Belt for you know for for decades and similarly. You know, from the other direction, if Marxism becomes a dominant philosophy in a society, then the, the politicians and the voters who support who support it, uh, you know, will find ways, loopholes to impose uh, social welfare programs to coercively redistribute wealth, to impose cancel culture on anybody who disagrees with, you know, communism, you know, and, you know, and, and so forth. So uh, it's a brilliant constitution. The Bill of Rights is brilliant. But um, it requires the 18th century Enlightenment philosophy, uh, and I think you know Ayn Rand's uh, the development of that philosophy in order for the, in order for that kind of government, in order for that kind of political system to flourish. Yes, but definitely... like, nevertheless, yeah, that, that, nevertheless, uh, before, before we get to Hume, uh, they say you know mankind advances in baby steps. This was more than a baby step. I think Locke and uh, Locke's political theories and the American founders' application of those theories a gigantic step forward in the battle for human liberty. He might have been the original Neil Armstrong, right? One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. <laughs> yeah, yes. I, I agree. I'm a big fan of John Locke. The uh, the second treatise on government I, I thought was phenomenal. His letter yes. concerning toleration I thought was good too. I've just never studied his epistemology. I never re really cared too much about it. His politics I thought was where it's at. But our next guy is a guy whose epistemology I think you're definitely going to have something to say about. Tell us about Mr. Hume. David Hume, Scottish, was his date, 1711 to 1776. So he's 18th, he's 18th century. And um, Hume also, uh, a, a strict empiricist, knowledge, knowledge originates with sense experience. The problem with Hume is knowledge begins and ends uh, with 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 sense experience, uh, he claims that the only things we know are what he calls impressions and ideas. Impressions are uh, immediate observations or 
you know, bodily sensations. Uh, I can bring up a painful one, like a toothache. Uh, those, uh, you know, those, uh, uh, actually, yeah, yeah, let's just, I was going to go into so, some romantic sensations, but let's just avoid that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but they're Not good. Not that right? kind of show, folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but we can say they're good, right? They're good. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah, they're good. We can say that one. Uh, so, uh, and ideas are simply, you know, kind of, kind of tepid. Uh, reflections on the, uh, you know, on on the impressions. They're they're, they're simply reflections. They're re reflections on on the impression by the mind, and that's what we know: uh, uh, impressions and ideas, ideas of them. So, where you see where this leads, Hume, in uh, in relentless logic, and he's famous for his critique of causality. You know that that a, a that a causes b. We could, we, we could, we, yeah, I think we should do a few examples of what Hume, how, how Hume applies his basic epistemology that all we know are what he calls impressions and ideas. So, First hold on one, one second. I just want to ask you the, the, his basic idea, right, is that no matter how many times event B follows event A, you can never ever conclude that A causes B. Right. That, right. That, that's his his basic thing that all we know is that it happens to follow. We can never know that there's causality. That's the that's like the simplest way that I know. I know how to state it. OK, so go ahead and, and give some ex good examples of this. Yeah. And accurate. That's that's accurate. Uh, so, you, you know, we stick our hand in a fire and we get burned. Don't try this at home, folks. This is this, this thought experiment. You know, we, st we stick our hand in a fire. We get burned. So you know, event A is we stick our hand in the fire. Event B is we get burned. And Hume says, in order in order to establish a causal relationship between A and B, one there has to be you know contiguity. That you know the two have to you know come together. But 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 two there also has to be what he calls necessary connection. Um, so there is spatial and temporal contiguity in my example. You know, uh, A comes first. B follows A in time, and the hand and the fire are in physical contact, so they they, they are contiguous. So, you know they 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 do touch you know or, or meet. Uh, but the necessary connection, you know, that there's any necessity here that B must follow A. Hume says I have no impression of that. I have no direct experience of it. I I I, I could see some idiot sticking his hand in the fire, and I could see him getting burned. But I don't see the must, you know, I don't see or taste or touch it. Where, where's the must? Where's the necessity? There's no observational evidence for that. Um, and so Hume, Hume concludes that we believe, it, you know, this is one example we can multiply it a million times. But we, we, you and I, human beings, believe in causation or causality as a convenience. It, it, it enables us to order our experience, you know, with some degree of... Uh, you know, uh, precision, and 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 we we can make predictions. So, you know, so you know, it's convenient for us to believe that if we uh, if we plant in the in the spring, then we can then we can harvest in the in the fall. You know, it, it enables us to order our experience. Uh, so, for human, but belief in causation is a is a convenience. It has um, utilitarian value in our lives. It's true by uh, it's it's true by it's a, it's a psychological convention. It's true by convention. It's a psychological uh, 
what, what's the word? I forget the word he uses, but, but it's a psychological mechanism by means of which we can make sense out of the, the teeming diversity and variety of experience. That, that, you know, that we believe the universe is ordered in these causal patterns that, that therefore we, we, we can predict. We can predict, you know, in summer it's going to be hot and in winter it's going to be cold and, you know, and, and so on. And if we, if we believe that day after day after day, as in the past, the sun will continue to rise in the east, we can make plans. So, what we're, you know, what we're going to do, you know, in the, in the daytime when the, when the sun is up and, you know, and so on and so forth. So it's a psychological convenience. It's, it's, it's um, convention is true by custom. He says it's a customary belief. Now, now, if he's right, there'd be no way for us to act at all. I, I mean, if, if cause and effect don't actually exist, then, I mean, I, I could be sitting here, the microphone jumps up, hits me in the face, the light goes flying. I mean, anything's anything's possible. Anything. I mean, this deuce is wild. Right, right. right. Anything. And, and that, all of that is possible, Hume says. There's no, <laughs> we have no reason to believe that that won't happen later today or or uh, at some point, you know, tomorrow, some point in the future, it's never happened in the past. That doesn't that doesn't tell us what's going to happen in the future. So, in his epistemology, he severs cause from effect, mm -hmm. which is dangerous, extremely. But he also severs is from ought. Could you tell us a little about that? Yeah. Y yes. The, the uh, this this is Hume's um, moral moral theory. Um, and Hume, Hume said, and Hume's very famous on on this. So, what is the good? This is, you know, this is the question of moral philosophy. It has been going back at least as far as Socrates. You know, what what is the good? How do we know it? So, you know, example I always use, simple example I always use is most of us believe that working hard and honestly and supporting ourselves by honest effort is good. Well, what makes it good? Hume says, I could see this guy working hard and sweating and everything. I could see him getting paid. I could see him putting money in the bank. I could see him, you know, observing, paying his bills and everything. But where is the good? I can't touch it. I can't see it. I can't smell it. I, uh, there's no observational data that this is good. There's no, you know, and if there's no, there's, there's no, um, there's, there's no, factual basis then for claiming that this, that that x in this case you're working hard and supporting yourself honestly there's no uh, factual basis for claiming that that this is good it's simply a customary belief uh, the, you know when the hume raises the question can we derive an or proposition from an is proposition that is can we get values from facts are our value judgments based in facts is it good to work hard, support yourself honestly? Well, Hume said, well, there's no factual, there's no observational data for that. There's no observed datum that of good uh, here. So it's um, it's true simply because it's simple, it's true because of other considerations. Generally, he believes that that emotionally, the, the, the people express when they say X is good, like in my example, for instance. They're expressing an emotional preference for X. That's the way they feel. There's no, there's no factual basis for it. So can we derive uh, values from facts or value judgments from facts? No. Can we get an ought or a should proposition from an is proposition? No. There's no factual basis for this.
So he's a subjectivist ultimately when it comes to epistemology and a relativist mm-hmm. when it comes to ethics. He severs cause from effect, is from ought, and ultimately sets the stage for Kant by waking Kant from his dogmatic slumbers, right? Absolutely, so, absolutely right. So we have to conclude, right, that Hume is a villain. Yes, Hume, yes. And and it's it's unfortunate because, do we have any time left? Sure. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's unfortunate because of, of Hume's virtues. And we should, we should point this out. First of all, he was known as a as a really you know good natured guy, he was very friendly and good natured and everything, very affable. Uh, he uh, worked hard to develop himself into a very good writer. Uh, his his histories are, 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 I think, are very good. He's a brilliant polemicist against religion. Is you know um, he 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 gives he he develops what was what was. It? You know, once I once I hit seventy, guys, my uh, short term memory started to go. Uh, uh, but his uh, his dialogues concerning natural religion is that is that the name? I think so. Um, he he develops maybe the best version of the design argument, you know, for God's existence, namely, you know that that the you know that if you, if you take a a human mechanism. That's brilliantly designed. Let me update it. Let's say, you know, German engineering got a Mercedes, you know, it's brilliantly designed and argues for the intelligence of the designer. Therefore, the complexity of the natural universe and how it runs in, you know, mathematical harmony is an argument for, for, for the intelligent designer. Hume gives the most best version of the design argument and then he destroys it. <laughs> you know, he's a brilliant polemicist against religion. His best friend was Adam Smith. Uh, and Hume was a strong believer in free markets and political freedom. Uh, there's a lot of virtues in, in David Hume, but his theoretical philosophy is a disaster. It is an absolute disaster. He even says somewhere in his writings, he says, you know, you know, I spend the day writing and I go out with my buddies at night. Yeah, I was going to mention you know, this. And we, yeah, yeah. He said, we, you know, we, we, we eat well, we drink well, we play in backgammon, we're having fun and everything, you know, living large. And I come home late at night and I read what I've written at then and go, God, that's bizarre. <laughs> it's just so strange, but I don't see any theoretical way to refute it. So it's like he himself recognized that his theories are crazed, but he couldn't. He couldn't see, you know, the the theory that that would you know establish it as false. So there's a lot of virtues in Hume, but yeah, his his theoretical philosophy, uh, both in epistemology and in ethics, is terrible. It's very harmful. Okay, well, we've made it through another episode. Do you have anything else you need to add? Well, like you already said, this sets the stage for Kant. And Kant you, you quoted Kant from the Critique of Pure Reason, where he said reading Hume awakened him from his dogmatic slumbers. And in our next episode, we'll see exactly what Kant meant by that. Yeah, Critique of Pure Reason, I think, is the hardest book I've ever read in my life. <laughs> it followed by, I think, Keynes' general theory of employment, interest, and money. I mean, it's just insane trying to read through this stuff. And it's probably, uh, you know, a lot of obfuscation by intent. I don't know. I don't, well, I you're obviously to... an intelligent guy and a, and a, and a major reader because you're talking about <laughs> difficult material. Uh, again, I would say, I would don't try this at home, but Hegel's Phenomenology of Mind Translation, I think it's even more difficult. Yeah, I've, I've never tried it. I, I read where Friedrich Hayek said, I don't pretend to understand Hegel. And I said, well, if Hayek can't 
we can't understand Hegel and he actually speaks the language. What chance do I got of understanding a translation? Yeah, well, two <laughs> two quick points on Hegel, Michael. Ayn Rance, Ayn Rance said somewhere uh, that that nobody's actually have ever read Hegel. You know, she said if, if a lot of people have looked at all the words on the page, but if <laughs> if reading involves getting some understanding from it, then no, nobody's ever nobody's ever ever read Hegel. And I think you know, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And secondly, what I what I've heard in, in Germany, you know, native-born German speakers who are you know that's German's their mother tongue, and they're in graduate school studying philosophy. That they very often will read Hegel in English translation rather than in, in German. They'll read them in translation rather than in, in their mother tongue, because the English translators are trying to you know make sense out, out, out of Hegel. So that, that's astounding. That's true. That is astounding. <laughs> okay, so where can they find you? Where can the people find you? Well, andrewbernstein.net. That's my uh my website, andrewbernstein.net. You can find me on Facebook. Is here again. Here's Heroes, Legends, Champions. Why Heroism Matters. Available um, on Amazon. My my novel. Why don't you send War, me a right? link for that too, so I can put it up with the the other link you're going to send. Okay. All right. Yeah, I will. Thank you. My my novel on race war reckoning is going to be out in a few weeks. Was you know, is it's race war comes to America. I feared it for a long time, and it's a, it's it's a brutal story. Because it's about race war, but it's all right. Well, once that comes out, out you got to come on and talk about that too. Oh yeah, sure, great, thank you, Mike. All right, thank, thank you. You're you're absolutely wonderful. Well, for now, this is the Rational Egoist. I'm Michael Leibowitz signing out. Remember, like, share, comment, subscribe. Till next time.